0: In a couple of days, those that have not already cast their ballot will head to the booth and we'll cast our ballots for the next president of the United States. Everything I hear is that by the time uh, the poll has been counted, we'll discover again that our nation. (laughs) is even more divided than we thought. William Galston of the Brookings Institute has worked on campaigns for Democrats, Republicans, and independents, and he has called the nation right now more deeply divided and more closely divided than ever in our history. By closely divided, he means that the margin between them the margins of victory are more narrow than they have ever been, consistently. And by deeply divided, he means that the differences in these two parties are deeper and they are farther apart than they have ever been. So never in the history of our country, he writes, Have the division, uh, have the ideas between the two parties been more widely separated and yet the balance of power between the two powers or the two parties so equal? Since 1920, when women were allowed to vote, there has never been more than three elections in a row without one candidate winning the White House by more than 10 points. But in the last nine elections since 1984, not a single candidate has managed to win the White House by double digits. Five out of the last seven elections have been decided by fewer than four points. The most recent 2016 divided by only two points. Prior to that, only four elections in the last 100 years have been so close. He finishes by saying, We have become a polarized country. Oh, and did I mention that was 2012? Since then, we've seen. Social issues come to the foreground. We've seen health issues come to the foreground. And these two have started to tear apart the fabric of our country. Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What, what God has joined together, let no one Tear apart or divide. It seems part of the human dilemma is to tear apart. When Jesus said it, he said it in the present imperative, which means the tendency to tear apart is ongoing. And so the struggle to keep it together must also be ongoing. But it seems like the human dilemma is to always separate and divide and distinguish ourselves and soon after polarize ourselves from another point of view. And the disciples said to Jesus, we saw a man casting out demons in your name and we told him to stop. Why? Well, because he was not one of us. And when the Holy Spirit fell on 70 elders and they began to prophesy as Moses once prophesied, Joshua came to Moses and said, Moses, tell them to stop. Why? Well, because they're not one of us. When the Egyptians served Joseph and his brothers, the Bible says they served Joseph and his brothers in one room, and they served the Egyptians in another room. Why? Because the scripture says it is contemptible for Egyptians to eat with Hebrews. And Jesus said to the woman, will you give me to drink? And she said, how be it that you, a Jewish man, would ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink because Jews and Samaritans have nothing to do with each other and the people were bringing their children to Jesus and the disciples cut in the way and they rebuked the parents and said keep the children away from the rabbi these are adults And when Jesus saw Zacchaeus up in the tree, he said, come down, for I must go to your house today. And when the people saw it, they said to themselves, look, he is going to the house of a sinner. And when Peter went into the house of Cornelius, he said to a room full of Gentiles, Now you know that our law forbids us to associate with Gentiles. This tendency to identify ourselves as a certain class or category or type of person is tearing us apart. The human dilemma is that humans continuously divide and the gospel of Christ is that God is active in this world right now, reconciling people through Christ's body, the church. People that were once divided, God is busy and active bringing people together in Jesus Christ. The cure for the human dilemma is not diversity. This is the most common response among humans to the human dilemma. We will put more cultures, more points of view, more tribes into the same body, and we will require them to get along. We'll pass laws that make it illegal to hate. We'll condemn certain kinds of speech. We'll sign peace treaties and ceasefires. We'll create quotas so that the same number are elected or hired from every tribe. The problem is that you cannot get rid of the human dilemma apart from transformation. You have to change the heart of a person. You have to change their souls the way that they see themselves and they see other people. Only then can the walls begin to come down. Too easily religious people run toward human solutions because... The call and the work of the gospel is so hard and so demanding. Here is Paul's argument in the book of Ephesians. I said to you a couple of weeks ago that in this community, this body that Christ is bringing together, it begins by centering that body on Jesus Christ. That means that the identity of everyone in that new community is in christ we don't form new communities based on our own conceptions of what a community should look like because then all we do is enter other communities and hold them up to our expectations and when they don't meet those standards we leave those communities and try to find other ones no says paul our union is only in jesus christ Paul says in Ephesians chapter one, for he chose us in him before the foundation of this world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons and his daughters. And he reconciled us to God and to each other through his blood on the cross. That is our story. Then once he establishes that center and says to the new community, your identity is only in what Christ has done for both of you. Then he opens the border in chapter two and he starts to let people in who didn't belong. In chapter two, Paul mentions for the first time Jews And Gentiles, insiders and outsiders. And he changes the narrative. The narrative is no longer whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, a slave or a free, a male or a female, a Democrat or a Republican. No, no. In chapter 2, the narrative changes. Now it's whether you are dead or alive. And so he says in chapter two, verse one, and you, who's you? It's the Gentiles, the outsiders. And you were once dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live. And then in verse four, he says, but God in his rich mercy made us, who's us? It's the insiders, it's the Jews, it's the people that had religious privilege. Now God has made us alive, even though we were once dead in our trespasses. So Paul has changed the narrative of this new community. It's no longer whether you are black or white, It's whether you're dead or alive. It's a community of grace. It's not a community of any previous social category handed to you by your culture. When you come in to the body of Christ, one thing matters, said Paul. It is grace. It is by grace that you have been saved. It is not of yourselves. It does not live inside of you. This is nothing you have done. This is no privilege that you were born with or without. What matters in the new community (laughs) is what God has done for both of us in Jesus Christ through grace. This is why... Paul, now having changed the narrative, says in chapter two, for he himself is our peace. Verse 14, he has destroyed the wall of hostility that we keep building up around ourselves and declaring in himself one new person, a third race all previous social categories are mute we still have them Jews are still Jews Slaves are still slaves, even in Paul's day. But those categories have become subdominant to another one. God is reconciling the world through Christ in us, the body. It's not that Christians don't believe this. It's that Christians too often don't care. We have been fed a narrative by the culture that we are a certain class or kind of person. And so when we come into the body of Christ, we bring those identities with us and we stay within those identities without ever taking on a higher one in the body of Christ becomes a collection of special interest groups each one vying for their own identities i cannot see how conversations About people of minorities coming into the body of Christ is helping us unite. As if I were a minority, I am not. That would remind me by coming into the body, I am still a minority. And that the majority has it in for me. And that my future is in my hands. And the only way to overcome is to overwhelm. But I'm not a minority. I'm in the majority. And what this narrative teaches me is that I am the one who is in control. That this is my church, and my body, and my business, and my team, and this is my resources, and this is my power, and I must protect it against people coming from the outside, from minorities, it will allow me to say, here you can come sit at the table, but people... It ain't my table. But as long as we revert to previously assigned social categories, and as long as we cannot get a vision of something higher than these silos that the culture has put us into, We cannot reconcile. So Paul says, when I open the border and new people come into this body, I must change the narrative, not from the one they heard before they got here, but to a newer one and one that is higher than both. And it's a new humanity. That's who we are. I turn on my phone in the morning and it tells me what I should care about. Depending on which channel I watch, it lists four or five things for me to worry about. The market, violence, Hunter Biden, I can go seven days and never once think about the fact that I am chosen in Christ before the foundation of this world to be holy and blameless. That's who I am. I can go a week without even thinking in love, God predestined me to be the son of himself. I can take all of that for granted and spend all of my energy on an agenda handed to me by the culture. And people, it is just causing too much sideways energy. I hear Paul saying, when the body is open and outsiders come in, there will be conflict. Conflict is ongoing in the body of Christ. We're never through with conflict. And the problem with leadership in organizations today is that we tend to want peace quickly. We want stability. We want things to get back to normal. The trouble, says Paul, is that peace is not the absence of conflict, it's the presence of a reconciling spirit. So there is always conflict, and peace happening in the body at the same time. Reconciliation is not something we do every now and then after there's been an outbreak of violence. Reconciliation in the body of Christ is ongoing. We are always reconciling because the people coming into the body are always different from us. So as we reorient these people to the center, Jesus Christ There will be conflicting agendas. So we will have to get used to conflict or we cannot lead. When I look around, I see not just leaders and organizations, I see uh, the public in general struggling with conflict. We don't know how to do it. Some of us in the room, we handle conflict by uh, exiting, by walking off, uh, by canceling, by leaving. Uh, We've got these three or four minutes of a rant that we've built up over months, and whenever the right subject comes up, we just go off into our top three arguments and then we mic drop, and then we walk off. This this does not reconcile. That's not called reconciliation. That's called throwing up. And the odd thing is, this is not happening only among collegians. We would expect it there. They're still developing their convictions. This is happening among their professors and administrators and pastors who lead their churches. Higher education today is, uh, is, is well in the grips of this kind of walk-off, protest, exit, cancel. And the odd thing is it was higher education that taught me years ago That the capacity to stay in an argument over a sustained period of time without leaving it was a sign of intellectual maturity. They did. There were seven levels of intellectual development, they said, and the capacity to stay in an argument that you're not winning right away is level six. But the tendency to leave an argument because you're not winning it right away is level three. And I'm asking myself, how did the people who taught me to move toward level six themselves get stuck in level three? This is not a virtue. It is not a virtue to exit an argument you can't win. Another way, is to overwhelm. The moment someone has held up the opposite view, we, and our leaders have taught us to fight like this, we start overwhelming with incendiary language, with labels, bigot, racist, sexist, socialist, Nazi thinking I presume that if we can overwhelm the other side, they will back down on their argument because they don't want to be that. When we don't leave it or when we don't shout over it we too easily compromise. We cannot stand tension. And so we quickly say, ah, you're probably right. Well, they might be, or maybe not. But we won't know until we stay in the tension. So I hear Paul saying this in Ephesians 3 and 4. In Ephesians 3, I hear him say, I'm praying for you. I kneel before the Father on whom the whole family on earth derives its name. And I pray that God will strengthen you by his spirit in your inner being. People, the inner being is the part of our country that is weak right now. I suspect it's because the inner being or the soul of our nation, even our churches, is fragile that Tension or conflict makes us nervous. We have to get out of it because we don't have the emotional stamina to stay in it. So Paul prays that God would strengthen our inner being, the person within the person, the part of your being that other people can't see, that God would meet you there and make that part of you strong so that you'll be able to hear arguments without having to believe them. You'll be able to hear lots of things without having to take sides immediately. People will criticize you and you won't have to think it's true all of the time. And you won't be as defensive or easily annoyed If God strengthens you on the inside, you will deal with people from a position of strength, not deficiency or weakness. So I pray for you, says Paul, that as you come into this community where the conflict and the tension is always there, There, that God will make you strong so that you do not react to every sign of tension or conflict. And then in chapter four, he stops praying and he calls us to make every effort. To keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Be humble. And gentle. I hear Paul saying in two words instead of three. Take ownership. for the peace that is in your community. Own it. When you take ownership for something, you don't criticize leadership By telling other people what you would never do, you tell us what you would do if you knew what the leader knows. If you don't, that's another problem. But when you take ownership, you tell us what constructive thing would you do if you were in charge. And then you practice that within the limitations of your position. You stop waiting for someone to give you permission to lead. You own it. And you do within your limitations what you wish your leaders would do with the whole. And then. You accept responsibility, whether it works or does not. And if it does not, you cannot blame someone else. You own it, say that's on me, that's mine. I need to do better there. Do you hear this? This week, you're going to be tempted Uh, When someone across from you is um, saying things that you cannot imagine somebody would believe, you'll be tempted to get up and walk away. Or maybe to be civil, you'll stay in the conversation and then you'll take to social media and say other things. You must resist the temptation to do that and make every effort. Because you are of two natures, not one, created in the image of God and yet infected with the human dilemma, you will be drawn toward organizations that look unified. And when you find one, you'll join it. And then when it fails to live up to your expectations, you will leave it and find another one. You must resist that temptation by making every effort To live in peace in the community you swear is broken. You will be tempted to label, minimize, overstate or embellish ad hominem the argument that someone else is making. You must resist this. You are called to peace. You will want to lay down ultimatums. You must lay down a way of peace. For reconciliation in the body of Christ is not a position. It's a practice. And it's never just national. It's personal. It's local. People. Reconcile before races do. People first. People first. This week, you go first. So, who are the people that annoy you the most? Who are the ones that are hardest for you to get along with? Maybe you'll think of names. I mean, personal pronouns. Maybe you'll think of classes or type of people. And why are they so hard for you to get along with? And what would it look like for you to forbear them in love? And then, what if you prayed for them? As God in Christ is praying for you, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Some time ago, I wrote myself a prayer, which... Tried to say this for me, oh God, give me a spirit of patience and humility. When I'm certain I am right, remind me that one may think differently and not be wrong. Teach me to listen without having to embrace, to empathize without needing to answer and to answer without trying to persuade. Teach me inside my safe definitions to leave room for other possibilities to eat with those whose heart is as mine, but their mind is of another persuasion. Help me to see that people really are more than the sum of their convictions and help me to embrace the part of them that embraces The simple Jesus, show me that I am not the kingdom of God, rather I belong to the kingdom of God, and what little of it I possess probably borders what is possessed by another, for you yourself have said, there are sheep who are not of this pasture. Finally, thank you for sending people and events into my life, whether I like them or not, that pull up the corners I nailed down too long ago. These remind me that your wisdom is infinite and your mercy is wide, and that smart as I think I am, there is more to you than I could ever know unless someone from another tribe stoops to show me, for even when I was sure I was right, I have been wrong. Amen. Now, what do we say in response to this? If you turn your attention to the screen, I've put up there the words of the prayer from St. Francis of Assisi. You know these words, you've prayed them or read them many times, but this morning I wish you would pray them with me from the bottom of your heart, will you? Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, And it's in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it's in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.